Father, it is indeed an amazing grace. It is so good just to hear the voices behind me lifting you up, putting the focus on Jesus and worshiping you for the amazing grace. Indeed, we live in an age of grace. Now is a time of your favor. Now is a day of salvation. And we are thankful. And all God's people said, Amen. Get your Bibles out. Today is, of course, what? Palm Sunday. Yes, Palm Sunday. And we call it Palm Sunday because today we remember what? The triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. And as Jesus rode on a donkey into the city, what did the people do? They spread their cloaks and palm branches on the road before him, celebrating the arrival of the King of the Jews. And this event affords us the opportunity to look back at a passage of Scripture that is perhaps the most amazing, complex, detailed, and far-reaching prophecy ever recorded. I've been through this before with you guys. It's always a good reminder to go through. It's been five years since I've taught on this. So we're going to go through this one more time again and look at what Sir Isaac Newton said. We could stake the truth of Christianity on this one prophecy alone. It's a pretty big prophecy. But before we dive into the passage this morning, I want to share with you once again my loathsome attitude towards helping people move. The story of moving my brother from his small three-story townhouse to his first home. I'll never forget this. I can still see the images as I'm talking about it right now in my mind. But we drove up from southern Ohio. A four-hour car ride uh, came to my older... Uh, up from southern Ohio via a four-hour car ride came my older cousin and my grandfather, where we were told that we would then take the, the next day, drive three hours from Cleveland, Ohio, to south of Detroit, Michigan. And here's a kicker. We were, we were told that my brother would be ready, ready for us to move him. Yes. The following morning, bright and early, we arrived at the townhouse ready to load up everything. Now, I am, what, 18, 19 years old this time, so who was doing most of the work was myself. I had my, my cousin, who was probably... Um, 35, 40. He was there helping. We were the, 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 the brawn. My grandfather, who was you know, in his 60s and 70s then, and uh, my other cousins happened to show up, and they were in the truck, and we were loading everything up and bringing it to him. My brother uh, as a diabetic, and he, he couldn't do much because of his, his health and so on. And of course, they had his wife and a, uh, their little newborn baby. So, Having moved several times across the country, I have learned two rules of moving, and these are immutable rules, immutable laws of moving, okay? It means that they don't change, and they're never to be broken, and their rules are, number one, you feed the help. You feed the help. There's always should be donuts there when you arrive and pizza or snacks or something during the day, okay? And number two, be ready. Because you have people volunteering your time and 
you need to put the work in, so all they do is lift and move and so on. I learned that lesson when I moved and I had people, you know, with the campus crusade and I had other staff members come over and it was just like, boy, everything's in this room. This here moves, don't touch this, that's it. And like, this is simple, and that's what we did. Okay, now, you're done packing boxes. This is what you're, if you're ready, you're done packing boxes. You just get out of the way of the movers and let them do their job. If you're not ready, it only delays the move. And when I walked into that small townhouse, I can still see this picture in my mind giving me flashbacks here. I may need prayer after this. Uh, saw open boxes everywhere in the kitchen. I knew I was in for a long day because they were not ready. Uh, I went down to the, the, the basement. Now, this is a townhouse, that, a two-bedroom townhouse. I, remember, I can tell you what it was. You know, up the stairs, there was a bathroom and two bedrooms. That was it. Come down to the stairs, there was a little sitting area, then a little area to eat, and then the kitchen, and that was it. Then down in the basement, in a little small basement. That's all that there was. I went down to the basement, and it was just full of boxes. It was packed, though, and I just would bring them up to the top of the stairs, and my you know, other cousin would take him and carry him to the, the truck. After an hour of me bringing boxes up, he said, are you about done down there? And I said, I'm about halfway done, and he couldn't believe it. Well, I, I should have known. I just didn't know. I wasn't smart enough back then. But I visited my um, brother's wife's house before when they were dating. And I, I didn't know, but they were hoarders. And so she also uh, had a... She kept every Happy Meal, the complete set, and packed them in boxes. So there was just... I was bringing up stuff after stuff after stuff. And then... Over an hour, maybe close to two hours, just getting that basement done. But what was amazing to me, even to this day, as I'm telling the story, is that they knew that we were coming from a distance to help them move. And they still weren't ready. Ever been in that situation where you, you, someone asks you to move, they say they're going to be ready, and they're not ready. So they know you're coming, and they're still not ready. That's kind of frustrating, isn't it? They even knew the exact time and date of our coming, and they were not ready. Now, there are moments in our lives that we demand that we be ready. If we're not, the consequences can be severe, right? Well, let's look at one such moment this morning. So, you're going to get a Bible workout this morning. Go to Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 20. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. It's fascinating how the purple pops off the page here, and it is incredibly dull up here. <laughs> you see it? Okay, good. The statesman, Daniel, who's also a prophet, says this, while I was speaking and praying, Daniel chapter 9, verse 20, Okay. It says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, Gabriel the angel, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, 
I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As you have begun to pray, as you began to pray, excuse me, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you. For you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider this message and understand the vision. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and for your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to be in, bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know and understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end of his decree is poured out on him. Now, there are six events that must come to pass to, for God's people and the holy city during these 77s. And there, I'll put them up here for you. If you want to take a picture, you can. If you want to write them down quickly, you can. But these six events must come to pass for God's people in the holy city during this 77s. Finish transgression, make an end of sin, make atonement for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, and anoint the most holy place. Last thing, the eighth one would be, there'll never ever be any more peeps again. They'll just be gone. No more peeps. A little humor there to get you a mind off of this very incredibly complex prophecy. Okay, that's the six things that have to come to pass. Now, here are some questions. First question, what are the 77s? To understand this passage, you have to understand what are the 77s. Well, very simply, they are sevens, a period of sevens. Okay, the Hebrew word for sevens is shabuim, shabuim. It means a period of sevens. That's what it means. Well, the next logical question is, well, how long are the sevens? Well, there's no indication whether the sevens refers to seven days, seven weeks, seven months, or seven years. We do know that 77s is what? 490, right? So if the six things of Daniel 9.24 were not completed within 490 days, 490 weeks, 490 months, it is logical to assume that the sevens refers to sevens of years. So the time frame is 490 years. Okay? There's sevens of years. Now the key verse, really, is verse uh, 25. It says, No one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets in the trench, but in times of trouble. So what does this verse tell us? What does verse 25 tell us? Well, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, there's going to be 69 sevens. Now, we know that 69 times seven is, is 483. So 483 years are going to pass from the issuing of the decree to restore and build Jerusalem until what? The anointed one, the ruler comes. 
Now, this is basically, here's the answer for you. 483 years will pass. You can read that. So we now know the specific timing of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to be 483 years from the issuing of this decree to restore and build Jerusalem. Now, this 483 years, it's divided into two separate sevens. A seven-year seven period of 49 years in which Jerusalem will be rebuilt in a 62 seven-year period following that of 434 years. In other words, you take 434 plus 49, you get 483. Two separate sets of sevens. Now let's take a closer look at the first seven sevens. It says it will be rebuilt with, with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. Now, what does that tell us? Well, if you know your Old Testament history, you're going to know that after King Solomon's reign, what happened to the nation of Israel? It's split in two, a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. Eventually, the northern kingdom became known as Samaria. And when Samaria fell to the Assyrians in 722, most Jews were deported and pagans were sent to live in Samaria. The remaining Jews intermarried with them and adopted some of their pagan religions while holding some of their own teachings of Judaism. Now, the Jews of the southern kingdom despised the Samaritan Jews for idolatry and intermarrying with foreigners because it was explicitly forbidden in Judaism. So when Jews from the southern kingdom began to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, Samaritan Jews came to help. And here was the response from the Jews from Judah. I'm just going to read this to you. It's Ezra 4.3 if you want to write this down. He says, But Zerubbabel... Joshua and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel. So they rejected their brothers. Why? Because they intermarried and adopted the pagan practices of the Assyrians. This only deepened the bitterness between them, so the Samaritan Jews built a temple on Mount Gerizim in Samaria and worshiped there. Now, do you remember the story of Jesus and the woman at the well? She was what? Samaritan woman, and she would worship on Mount Gerizim. So that's why she said to Jesus, Which, where do you worship? Mount Zion or Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim? Now, when the Jews from Judah began to rebuild Jerusalem during the time of Nehemiah, Samaritans came down to discourage them and even threatened to kill them. The wall in Jerusalem was indeed built in a time of trouble as prophesied by Daniel. Again, it will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. How did they rebuild it? Do you remember? With what? A trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. Exactly as it's been prophesied. Now, the question is this. When was the decree to rebuild Jerusalem given? Well, the answer is here. And get your Bibles out. You're in Daniel. Go to Nehemiah, a little guy. Another joke. How tall was he? Nehemiah. 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 Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 and 8. 
This is the story of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem when it was given. If it weren't such a long verse, I would have put it up there. But I know it's not easy to find Nehemiah. Anyways, Nehemiah 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. And I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. In verse 8, The king granted what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. The history tells us that King Artaxerxes' reign began in 465 B.C. So in the 20th year of his reign, it would be 445 B.C. Now the first day of Nisan is March 14th. So the 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy began on this date, March 14th, 445 B.C. Since the Jewish calendar considers a month to be, to be 30 days you multiply 483 years times 360 days in a year, and you get a whopping 173,880 days. Now, if you take March 14th, 445 B.C., add 173,880 days, you come to April 6th, A.D. 32. You probably want to write that down. Because according to Sir Robert Anderson's chronology, it was on this day that Jesus Christ rode into the city in his triumphal entry. 69 sevens, 483 years until the anointed one, the Messiah, comes. Let's see, since we're talking about the triumphal entry this morning, what happened on that day. Turn your Bibles to Luke 19. Luke 19. Now keep it in the back of your mind. Be ready. Be ready. Luke 19, 28 through 44. And when he had said these things, as our Lord speaking, he went ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage in Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet set. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the calf, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. 
saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, what happens next in his triumphal entry? When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Should the people have known on this day who was coming? Yes. God revealed it to who? Daniel. Daniel. They were not ready. So he says, but now they're hidden from your eyes. And then for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. He's talking about the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another on you. Well, why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. They did not recognize their king when he was coming. He gave them almost 500 years to prepare, to be ready. They weren't ready. It's one thing to not be ready for someone to help you move. <laughs> it's annoying. This is tragic. Now, that's not a very triumphal entry, is it? But that's what we are celebrating today, right? I don't know why they call it a triumphal entry, but go back to Daniel now, Daniel chapter 9. The destruction of Jerusalem. It says, after the 62 sevens, verse 26, the anointed one will be cut off, will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy this city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. Here, God is telling Daniel of the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus says basically the same thing in Luke 19, referring to the same event, okay? And the sanctuary was destroyed. It was desecrated. Now, go back to Luke 19. I'm going to give you a workout this morning here. Jesus goes into greater detail of what will happen. If you have any doubt of the sovereignty of God and his working out his plan in all things, including the plan of salvation, this should remove those, those doubts. Jesus says this in verses 43 and 44 about the destruction of Jerusalem. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. There will be people who are pregnant that will die. Children will die. We know what history tells us. They ate. They were so starved. They ate the dead. And, you will not, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. They, they completely raised the, the temple. Why? 
What does the text say? I'm asking you to read back the last basically 10 words of verse 44. They did not know the time of presentation. We could sum it up and say they were not ready. They were not ready. That's really what this we're celebrating here. The triumphal entry, you need to be ready. Now, tension between the Jews and the Romans were growing stronger at this time in history. The completion of the Jewish temple in AD 64 put thousands of laborers out of work, added to the general discontent of the Jews not liking to be ruled by anybody. Finally, in AD 66, the Jews revolted, signaling their intent by refusing to perform the daily sacrifice for the emperor. At the start of the revolt, the leaders of the Jerusalem church were advised, and we'll listen to this, in a vision to flee the city. God spoke to his people, flee the city. Well, why would he do that? He knows exactly what is coming. He warns. He warned the people of the first society for 120 years. God doesn't delight in any, the death of anybody, the wicked or the righteous. History tells us that the Roman general Titus Vespasian attacked Jerusalem with Roman artillery, smashing down the walls. They caught everybody they could that was outside the city, and mercenaries crucified as many as 500 a day until there was a forest of people crucified all outside the city. The forest that was there was stripped bare, crosses were put up, and people were crucified. A million people died. 100,000 bodies were thrown out over the wall. The city was then sealed off, and the people left inside were starved to the point they actually ate their own children. Robbers ran through the streets and stole the clothes off of the dead bodies. The Romans did this in 70 AD, just as Daniel and Jesus said they would. Now, let's take a closer look at Jesus' triumphal entry. The king is coming. Their long-awaited king is coming. This was the one mentioned in Genesis 3.15, the one who would come who would what? Crush the head of the serpent. They've had, you know, thousands of years to get ready, and now he comes. Would they be ready? Let's look at the response of the people. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 21. Matthew 21. Be ready. Jesus has ridden on a donkey. They've laid down their cloaks and the palm branches, and he's entered Jerusalem. Verse 12 of chapter 21 of Matthew. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Well, why this violent outburst by Jesus? Because it was a time for the feast of Passover. This was a required event. Many Jewish families had made the long and dangerous trek to Jerusalem. And they carried with them the coins from the countries from which they came. And those coins had on the imprints of human kings. And to the religious leadership of that time, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the scribes, and so on, this was idolatrous. So Rome allowed the religious leadership to print new coins for the feast. 
which had no imprint of a human on them. People would simply exchange their coins for the new ones. But you've got to love humanity, right? But the temple leaders charged an inordinate rate for the exchange, as well as animals for sacrifices were in great demand. And religious leaders had inflated these prices too. In other words, this was big business for the religious leadership. And it showed a heart that was not holy to God. The next day, the religious leadership questioned the authority of Jesus. He responds with two parables, the parable of the tenants and the parable of the wedding feast. Look at Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 to 22. Because in these two parables, he declares plenty that the kingdom of God had been taken away from them and given to a people that will bear fruit, i.e. the Gentiles. This is an unthinkable idea to the Jews. And so he comes in, the people aren't ready, and what are they doing? The very people that should have been ready for him, the religious leaders, are doing what? Profiting off the people in the name of their religion. That was unholy and un, unimaginable to our Lord, and so this is why he did what he did. Now look at verse 22, or Matthew 22, verses 15 to 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his talk. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, in other words, let me just say what's going on here. Okay? He embarrassed them. He called them out for their sin, right? How do they respond? In repentance, in humility? No, they come at him to try and trip him up. And this is not a, a genuine question. They're simply trying to embarrass him, alienate him. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coins for the tax. They brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Now remember, what did Jesus have done? He had publicly condemned the religious leaders, and they want revenge. The Pharisees were not looking for an answer to their question. They simply wanted to, to discredit Jesus. Now the Pharisees and the Herodians hated each other. But they were driven together by their hatred of Jesus. And the Herodians, just so you know, were more of a political entity than anything else. They supported Rome. They were appointed positions of leadership by Rome. And as a result, they were detested by the majority of Jews, especially the Pharisees. But the Herodians favored paying taxes to Caesar, and the Pharisees detested paying taxes. So how would you answer their question? So do you see the dilemma Jesus is in? He says yes to paying taxes to Caesar, he's going to offend the crowd that hated paying taxes to Rome. If he says no, the Herodians would call him a traitor and have him put to death. And of course, Jesus being God has the perfect response. He completely amazes them 
Yet the Pharisees and the Herodians remain unrepentant. Two enemies come together against a common enemy, Jesus. That's the level of the hardness of their heart. The very people that were to be ready, rejoicing at the coming of their king. This is all happening to Jesus when the day he arrives. Okay? Now, look at verses 23 through 33. Same chapter. It says, The same day the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teachings. See, the Sadducees controlled the priesthood and the temple. Their hero of the faith was Moses. He was their guy. And they exalted the books that Moses wrote above all other books of the Old Testament. They also didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And their question is aimed at showing how ludicrous it is to believe in the resurrection. So how would you answer that question? What Jesus does do, what does Jesus do in his response to them? He claims that they don't even know Moses, their hero. They don't know what he taught, and they had a lifeless, powerless faith because they'd never experienced the power of God in their lives. They'd never been transformed. They couldn't possibly fathom the resurrection of the dead. And Jesus informs them that their questions was irrelevant because there is no marriage in heaven. And further, since the Sadducees denied angels, Jesus discomfits them by comparing man's state in the resurrection to that of angels. And what was so damaging about Jesus' question to the Sadducees? Well, he takes them back to Moses in the burning bush, a story they should have known very well since Moses was their hero. In that story, God identifies himself as who? I am the God of who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These three patriarchs had been dead for hundreds of years when God made that statement to Moses. But he says what? I am the God of. Am is in the present tense, meaning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were alive. They were living. Resurrection is real. The Sadducees were wrong. It was proven by their hero Moses. But they remained unrepentant, along with the Pharisees and the Herodians. Look at verses 34 through 40. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, why is this question so tricky? Because there were two schools of thought during this time as to what was the greatest commandment. Some felt that loving God was the greatest commandment. Others felt that loving your neighbor was the greatest commandment. So if you Jesus sided with any one of those schools of thought, he would alienate the other, and his following would diminish. Either way, he would lose half of his audience. But by citing both schools of thought, he foils the Pharisees' plan, and yet they still remained unrepentant. Amazing, isn't it? When you know the, the days and what goes on during the day. And again, what should they have been doing? They should have been ready, waiting, rejoicing for the coming of their king. Now let's go to Matthew 23. Knowing they got context, what stands out as you read this in the language? This is some of the harshest language found anywhere in the Bible. Seven woes condemning their hypocrisy. Woe to you, he says, and he calls them hypocrites, and other, amongst other things. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians, they all had a history of killing the prophets, and they knew it. And they were about to crucify the Son of God. And what is his response to all of this? Look at verses 37 through 39 of Matthew 23. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. See, your house is left to you desolate. What's that referring to? The temple, the God had left that temple a long time ago. He was there, God himself, better than, than when God visited in the Old Testament. Physically there, that was going to be gone. It was eventually going to be destroyed, laid waste. For I tell you, and this is key, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now what does verse 38 mean? Well, the house is the temple of God. It is now desolate. Desolate of what? Well, it's God's presence and glory. Now, you think Nehemiah's heart, get, turn to Ezekiel 8. I want to show you what happened when God first left the temple. It's a, 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 a very, very sad, dark story in the history of Israel. Because the presence of God was there physically in Jesus. He was about to leave. When was he going to leave? In a week. Remember? He'd be crucified. Here we have him leaving in the Old Testament. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Below it appeared to be his waist was fire. Above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. He put out the form of a hand, and he took me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north. 
where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there. So the God is there, his glory is there, like the vision they saw in the valley. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was this image of jealousy. He said to me, Son of man, do you not see what they are doing? the great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far away from my sanctuary, but you will still see greater abominations. In other words, God was driven away by the people's sin. Now go to chapter 10. Look at verse 4. The sin of the people is driving the presence of God away. Chapter 10, verse 4. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. Jump down to verses 18 and 19. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. Now look at verse, chapter 11, verses 22 and 23. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on a mountain that is on the east side of the city. In other words, what's happened to the glory of the Lord? It's being driven away from the people. Well, why? Because of their sin. But we see these, these stops along the way. It's as if the glory of God is pausing, saying, don't drive me away. I want to be your God. Now, 600 years later, what's happening when Jesus arrives in his triumphal entry? History is repeating itself. God was present with the people in flesh. In Christ, the glory of God could return to the temple, but the people would not repent and accept him. And here's Matthew's version of the first coming of Jesus, his triumphal entry. Just listen, we read it in, in Luke. Here's Matthew. Just listen to this. Luke 21, 7 and 9. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on their cloaks, and he set on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks in the road, and others cut branches, the palm branches from the trees, and spread them out in the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That's today, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. But look what he says. Just listen to this. Again, I'll read this one more time in Matthew 23, 37 to 39. God's heart is broken. He cries out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. He longs to be their God. He wants them to be his people, and they would have nothing to do with him. And he says, see, your house was left to you desolate. It was left desolate back in Ezekiel, and now it's left desolate right at this time in history. But he says this, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And look at verse 39. What will the Jews say when Jesus comes a second time? 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They didn't say it the first time when he came over 2,000 years ago. They're going to say it when he comes a second time. So when understood in its historical context, the triumphal entry of Jesus that we remember today, it just serves as a reminder that we must be ready when he returns. And that's why I just close with this verse right here. Heed these words, folks. You also must be ready. for The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. That's what I want you to get from this message. Be ready. That's really what the triumphal entry is about. Because it really wasn't triumphal. Yeah, he came, but his people didn't recognize him, and, when, and they would not follow him. Let's not commit the same mistake. Amen? Let's pray, and we'll go eat. Lord, I pray that you would make all of us ready for when you return. Whatever it is you are doing in our life, whatever you're calling us, whatever you are, have for us. I pray that we don't live like the people in the days of Noah. Common life, totally unaware, and caught off guard of the judgment of God. We know that's what it'll be like in the second coming. May that not be true of us. May we be ready. And Lord, as we celebrate being ready in the triumphal entry of our Lord entering Jerusalem, as we prepare our hearts for this week, as we celebrate the death and resurrection next Sunday of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are eternally grateful and we thank you. And Lord, would you bless this food that we're about to eat. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You're all dismissed. Make your way out to the ham, because Fellowship Hall was reeking of ham. There's plenty of ham there and other goodies. And enjoy your, your meal, and I'll be in in a few minutes.